0: You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Over the past several weeks, there have been a lot of predictions about how our world will be changed after the coronavirus and a hope from many that things will get back to normal. But at the same time, we're seeing the cracks and flaws of that entire notion of normal of the world before the coronavirus, from the healthcare system to climate policy, economic and educational equity, and our political discourse at large. Here on Detroit Today, we wanna start looking ahead and thinking kinda critically about the kind of country and world we wanna live in moving forward. What things may be better left behind, and how can we try to reconcile these new ways of being with the past? Joining us now to talk about one aspect of that is Peter T. Coleman, a professor of psychology at Columbia University who studies intractable conflict. He was recently included in a piece from Politico in which he delves into the ways that COVID-19 could change the intense political polarization that we experience in this country. Peter, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Good morning. Thank you, Stephen.
0: So let's start with your work, which focuses on this thing called intractable conflict. Explain that in layman's terms for our listeners.
1: Well, uh, these are the conflicts in our lives, or in our communities, or even in the international realm that get stuck uh, for too long, are you know, uh, foster too much misery, attention, resources. Um, in, the, in, in international affairs, it's approximately five percent of the more difficult conflicts get just stuck for something like. 30 years, 40 years or longer, um, despite good faith attempts to address them. But they also happen in our homes and in our families. And clearly, uh, they happen in our political sphere in the U.S. today. The, the degree of polarization that we are been ex- experiencing today is at the levels that really have surpassed um, how polarized we were after the U.S. Civil War, um, by some accounts, um and this is about a 50 year trajectory if you look at like voting patterns in Washington DC they've become more and more polarized mm-hmm. since really the early 80s and mm-hmm. we're at a place now where we're dysfunctional in our capacities to respond to uh extreme events extreme crises like the one so our polarization becomes most evident and consequential in times like this when we really have to come together as a nation and fight a threat like this, and our um, initial responses have been really filtered through the political polarization of our nation.
0: So uh, your, your theory is that this crisis will break that logjam, that will it will stop some of the rancor that, that keeps us from working together. I guess I, I feel like I'm experiencing something really different. If I look at my social media feed, for instance, and I I feel like people are are at each other, perhaps even more right now than they were before. The political landscape here in Michigan is a really interesting example of that. Early on, you saw Republican leaders in our legislature supporting our Democratic governor in her efforts to keep people at home and and to stop commerce as a way of stopping the social spread of this disease. But last week, that, that all melted down in some very, very bitter attacks from, from Republicans on the Democratic governor saying she's gone too far. She's going to ruin the economy by doing any of this. What is, the, what is the thing that, in your mind, turns that in a different direction after this and maybe brings us more together? What, what's going to happen that will change all of that?
1: Yeah, well, let me just say a little bit. The, I think that the political polarization uh, state that we're in is a big, complicated problem. It's a it's a structural problem. Um, you know that we're politically, we're culturally, uh, and we're even physically uh, polarized and, and separated from each other in this nation. And so, um, when something like this happens, of course, we view it uh, in in terms of political polarization, um, and it has the kind of negative impacts that you're seeing. I mean, I think there are two scenarios that research tells us um, are hopeful scenarios. One is what we call the common enemy scenario, which is really just when there is a threat of this magnitude of biological pandemic like this, what um, history teaches us and what the research teaches us is that it does provide a kind of common threat and a common goal that can unify nations. There's Evidence, uh, for example, in South Africa right now, the BBC has reported that gang uh, leaders and gang, different gangs in um, in the townships in South Africa have reached a, a sort of truce and a ceasefire now because of the epi- epidemic and because of their sort of interest in mobilizing to help the communities. You've seen similar things under like natural disasters like tsunamis, where in Indonesia in 2004, there was a tsunami and you saw... Um, armed groups put down their arms, help the communities rebuild, and then within a couple of years sort of reach a, a ceasefire and a peace treaty. So there there are times in human history when extraordinary events, events like this can sort of unify us, again, depending on the level of the impact and the duration of it. Um, and so that's one hopeful scenario. You see some evidence of this but in the fact that the Senate was able to come together in a, in a, a unanimous way and reach consensus on the CARE bill. Um, so there is some evidence of, at our government level, people coming together, and certainly at the community level, of people rallying around the healthcare workers and folks that are working on the front lines and grocery stores and pharmacies. You know, I live in New York City, uh, and uh, which is right now, as you know, the epicenter of this. And at seven o'clock every night, the windows open and people bang pots and pans and <laughs> cheer on the, the frontline workers. And this is, you know, all of my neighbors of all political persuasions are joining in solidarity in support of these folks. So there is some evidence that a crisis like this can bring us together. But there's a second more interesting scenario that I'm happy to talk about, which is what we call the political shockwave scenario. And all that says is when you have a a problem like our political polarization that is as deep and entrenched as it is. Yes, the immediate uh, effects of it will influence how people perceive the the pandemic and how they respond to the pandemic. But what it does is it's, it's a political shock. It's a destabilizing shock. And what history tells us and what the, the research on like long-term conflicts tell us is that they're very hard to change and they do oftentimes require some kind of major shock, like an assassination or the end of the Cold War or 9-11. These are major destabilizing events. And what happens when a community or a country experiences that kind of a event, it changes like our basic structures. It changes psychologically how we think about problems, how we see the other side, what our priorities are. It really even can start to change our neurological structures that feed those attitudes. But it changes norms and habits, and it changes kinds of media we attend to. And, you know, there are shifts that happen. And what's interesting about that, these effects, these more destabilizing effects, is you usually don't see major change right away, but you see small things change affecting other kinds of changes. And then over time, you see qualitatively significant changes in depolarization and in communities coming together, you see really a qualitative and sustained change, and that's the, the more promising to me scenario because it's you, you don't see immediate effects. Um, and I, frankly, I don't I don't think that that the internet platforms like Facebook and Twitter are places to see, you know, the middle coming together because it's they tend to be, um, you know, most populated by the more extreme voices. Um, But what you can eventually see is a unification and sort of solidarity uh, and coming together, which is, uh, I think, the most hopeful scenario.
0: Mm. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Peter T. Coleman professor of psychology at Columbia University, who studies intractable (coughs) conflict. His book, The Way Out, uh, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, is going to be released next year in 2021. Uh, We're talking about the opportunity that might be presented by this pandemic for us to move past some of the intractable conflicts that we live with Under normal circumstances, can we get past the political polarization, for instance, that has paralyzed this country to the point where it is unable to respond sufficiently to something like the coronavirus pandemic? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. We really want to get to this question of what change will look like after this pandemic is over. If you could make one change to the way our country operates after coronavirus has passed us by... What would it be? Would you change health care? Would you change education or child care? Would you change food security or other economic issues, poverty? Uh, Also, do you think this country will be less polarized after COVID-19? Do you think that this will bring people together across partisan divides that seemed uncrossable before this all happened, or do you think this is just going to make things worse? Are you seeing instances of people being more partisan and more nasty toward each other because of the stress of coronavirus? As always, the number here on the phones is 313 1019 That's 313 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we will try to work you into the conversation. We really want to start talking here about what happens when we get past all of this and what kind of world we want to build on the other side. What are the things that we can make better about life in America and throughout the world? Again, three one three five seven seven. 1019 is the number. Uh, let's go to Mike in Gross Point. Mike, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, good morning. How are you, Stephen?
0: Good. How are you?
1: I'm great. I'm enjoying the little time off. But well, the one thing I would change the most is education. What I see is this. This pandemic has illustrated in a very bold way the educational neglect, that's a systematic evil in our country, particularly in the African American cultures, like in Detroit. And I would pour tons of resources into increasing educational opportunities for the children who've been left behind for about 300 years. That's what I would change, Stephen.
0: Hmm. Uh, that's a really that's a really interesting point, uh, Mike. I I, I absolutely agree with you and I think uh, there's a lot of other folks who would uh, who would who would probably agree as well uh, uh, Peter Coleman uh, talk about that opportunity to change things like education on the other side of coronavirus yeah
1: no I think I think uh, Mike is right I think education is a is a um Uh, an extraordinary problem that our country faces, the divisions. You know, there are sort of two or three education systems. There's a more wealthy and elite system. There are public systems that are functional, and then there are acutely dysfunctional public systems, and they usually serve more marginalized communities. And so the the structural inequality that's within education is a profound problem. But I would say that we need to go even deeper in terms of our aspirations for what can change here, because one of the reasons why we don't see the kinds of changes we need to see in education is the incapacity of our leaders to come together and work together to find solutions and common ground that can um, have an impact. I also think it's important to think that, you know, education happens all over the place. It happens in, you know, it begins in the home with parents reading to their kids and and being able to you know um, share a certain kind of vocabulary with the children, and it spreads all the way through formal education and then beyond that. And so I think we have to think about the the crisis of education more systemically because it's it's you know it's it's about are the children getting in enough to eat? Are they do they are they up all night in the emergency room because they don't have access to health care, and so they're exhausted when they go to school and can't attend or get into fights and, and you know so. There are there are many factors that contribute to the, the disparate education outcomes, and we really need to understand them more holistically, and understand the challenges that our policymakers and our leaders face in their capacities to find creative solutions to address these kinds of problems.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, again, thanks very much, Mike, for the call. Let's go to Mary in Gross Point Park. Mary, welcome to the program.
1: Good morning. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I agree it would be nice to see changes in a variety of topics and areas. I really think it's naive to think it's going to happen without major change in the players and specifically the Republican Party. I mean, the Wisconsin vote situation is but one example of their scorched earth policy that they have really just continued to march in that direction. Mm. So that's my comment. Mm. Thank you.
0: Mary, I really appreciate the call. Uh, and the comments uh, uh, Peter Coleman what we saw in Wisconsin was i think fairly described as one political party trying to kind of take advantage of some of the disadvantages that the pandemic is foisting on people in urban areas uh, poor people and use it to make uh, their side win a little a little easier so that's kind of the opposite of this idea of getting past partisan politics is doubling down on it. Mary says that in order for us to, to get any real change, we got to change the players, and, and in particular, the players on the conservative side of the political spectrum. What do you think of that?
1: Well, I think that's to some degree true. I think it's also just about the you know the the norms in our political discourse and our political sphere has have so deteriorated uh, for so long. I mean, look, you know, I think. Dirty politics have existed for a long time. I come from Chicago, which had a political machine, which, you know, where you saw Joseph Kennedy, uh, you know, put his thumb on the scale and help his son become elected. So definitely, uh, I think um, dirty politics are part of the problem and corruption and money in politics are another part of the problem. I think this country has a long history of that. And yes, I think think there's plenty of evidence to look at the Republican Party today and and think that there is a suppression of voting. Um, You know, there are other types of of, uh, influential attempts by the Koch brothers to really take over the media, local media, and influence the sort of how people understand issues or how issues are framed. So there there definitely are many political forces out there that shape it, but it's not new. Right. This is part of the American culture. And I think taking a hard look at what we've come as a public to um, accept in terms of political discourse, it's not this way everywhere in the world. It is, you know, we have a uniquely partisan um, and really negative discourse. The power of negativity in our political discourse is unlike most other nations. So I think we have to take a hard look at that and, you know, the public's willingness to accept and tolerate that.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about change on the other side of the coronavirus pandemic. We want to continue to hear from you as well, Bob in Redford, Peter in Whitmore Lake, stay on the line. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what you would change in a post coronavirus world? What things do you think there's an opportunity to make better about Detroit, Michigan, America, or the world? Stay with us on Detroit Today. to Detroit Today on 101.9 WBT. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for joining. My guest is Peter T. Coleman. He's a professor of psychology at Columbia University, and he studies what he calls intractable conflict, the kinds of things that make it really impossible to get to solution because the discord between two sides is so intense. He has a book coming out in 2021 called The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. We're talking about the opportunity that the coronavirus perhaps presents for us to move past some of these intractable conflicts and get to better spaces to be able to talk to each other across political lines a little better and to indulge in a little more solution-making than perhaps we have been able to in the past. We really want to hear from you about the things that you would change after this pandemic has passed. Uh, What would it be? Healthcare, education, childcare, food, security, poverty, all of these things that seem to make this worse. Which one would you pick to make different on the other side of it? Uh, Also, give us a call and tell us if you think we will be less polarized after the coronavirus pandemic, how's that looking in your world? Are you able right now because of the emergency, because of the dire consequences of what's happening to look past some of the things that divide you from other people in your community? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Peter in Whitmore Lake. Peter, welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning, Stephen. Thank yeah. you. Sure. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, um, I was calling kind of like what your earlier caller, Mike, was talking about with education disparity. Um, I live on a pretty large just personal family farm about 15 minutes north of Ann Arbor, and we have no access to broadband internet, mm. and neither do a lot of our neighbors, mm. um, one of the things I'd like to see changed personally is having broadband Internet labeled some kind of necessity for people, especially just given our time in history. And, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to see that's that interesting. broadband given yeah. to pretty much anybody that doesn't have access. To
0: yeah. Internet. Yeah, Peter, that's a really interesting idea, the, the, the concept of something like broadband perhaps being seen as electricity or water the kinds of things that we we try to make sure and we don't always do it perfectly but that we try to make sure people have automatic access to no matter where they live Uh, peter coleman that reminds me of the idea of infrastructure change on the other side of this infrastructure weakness is one of the things that i think has made this a little worse in some places perhaps uh, changing that uh, investing more in in making sure that works a little better is something that that might be possible and and seems to to not raise some of the partisan conflicts that that we have seen before
1: yeah I agree with you completely I, I think that one of the ironic benefits of uh, a time like this or crisis like this is is it does expose the fragilities in our society and the and what you know what's missing what's wrong with the society really pull you know it turns the heat up on everything and so we start to see the inequalities and inequities and how certain uh, communities are marginalized and I think you're right that internet is such a increasingly fundamental component of our lives of how we communicate of how we learn of the news and ironically the 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 pandemic has forced you know i I, I teach at columbia university and my colleagues and i you know way across the country now in 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 schools you know um from k through through university have had to go online and learn how to teach online effectively you know there's been a movement towards this for a couple of decades but it's been slow and spotty and this has really jump-started the need to learn how to do that to learn how to do it well and the inequities that it exposes in that many communities don't have access to um, to online education. Mm-hmm. So I think you're, you're right. That's a, a should be seen and will be seen as a sort of basic necessity that people need m- moving forward in order to stay connected, stay informed, and to learn uh, and to work together. Right. Mm. So I think it's a it's a critical component. And you're right. I think it should be a high priority coming
0: out of this. Mm. Let's go to Larry in Detroit. Larry, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning, Stephen, and hey.
1: thank you for all that you do. I'll just briefly say that my age will allow me to remember at the height of the AIDS crisis. All of the finger pointing that took place before we began to have some sort of cessation of the spreading of the disease and the the gay community was was turning on each other. It was just a cacophony of finger pointing and not understanding and just everybody just going crazy. They were talking about teardrops and sweat and mosquito. People just didn't know. So I just hope that we can prepare and be ready for what the onslaught of of ill behavior may come at the end of the COVID-19. We need to learn how to get through this instead of finger pointing and talking about things that we don't know and that we don't understand. Hmm. Thank you, Stephen.
0: Larry, I really appreciate that call and those comments. Uh, Peter Coleman, that, that reminds me that, you know, we've been at inflection points like this in the past, not perhaps as dramatic as this one. But the AIDS crisis is kind of a reminder of of how things play out when when scary things, when widespread danger sort of visits with us. I, I wonder if we can expect that things will be different this time than, as Larry points out, they were 20 or 30 years ago at the height of the AIDS crisis.
1: Well, it's a, again, it's an excellent question. I think that these, these kinds of um, catastrophes, Can uh, evoke different tendencies in humans. You know, there's a tremendous story about World War II and the Blitz that took place over the UK when the Nazis, for 56 days, bombed the UK, London, and outlying areas. Uh, And Winston Churchill, who was Prime Minister at the time, and his cabinet were particularly concerned. That what would happen under those conditions is that people would turn on each other, that you'd have everybody for you know for themselves struggling for scarce resources, and there would be you know basically chaos would break out. So they were genuinely concerned under that level of threat how humans would respond. And in fact, what they saw was the opposite. They saw a solidarity, a, a, a coming together of compassion and altruism and care for one another. At extraordinary levels, and so it it really did evoke sort of our better angels at that time, and so humans have the potential to do that to kind of come together. I think you're right in the AIDS crisis it was it was early on weaponized it was you know moralized people saw certain groups that were more afflicted as morally inferior, and they used that as ammunition. I think the one of the differences here is that this is such a pervasive illness and it's not, it doesn't know sexual orientation differences. It doesn't know red and blue differences, right? It's affecting everybody. I mean, it started in the cities, right? The more densely um, uh, dense population centers of our country, but it's spreading everywhere and it will affect uh, uh, Americans of all stripes. um, And in fact, humans of all stripes across the globe. So in that way, it is an equal opportunity threat, and it and it does provide the possibility for us to start to recognize that these differences don't matter under these conditions. We really need to unify and come together, um, not only in the U.S. but really globally across nations.
0: Okay, Peter T. Coleman, professor of psychology at Columbia University. It was really, really great to have you here with this conversation. I'm sad that we are out of time. I think we could have gotten to a lot of other listeners and a lot of other dimensions of this conversation. But I really want to thank you for your time.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I'm happy to come back because I... I think we'll be struggling with these issues for quite a while.
0: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, And a reminder that Peter Coleman's book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, is going to be released in 2021, so next year. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will, too. We'll talk with Dr. Elizabeth Moji, the, the Dean of Education at the University of Michigan, again, about education during the coronavirus pandemic, what's different and what will be different going into the future. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.